If you just make your way back to your seats. All right, so if you got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Continuing looking there at our, at the fourth of our seven, um, Old Testament festivals. The festival or the feast of weeks, uh, is what we find ourselves in today, starting in, uh, chapter 23, verse 15 through 22. So it says, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present... With the bread, seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offering. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, again, we thank you for uh, this time. We thank you for all your many blessings. Uh, We thank you for your goodness and graciousness, uh, the way that you provide for us on a daily basis. God, you are the provider of our daily bread. Um, And God, you have worked through any number of means to allow us um, to to be provided for and to um, live lives of blessing and of plenty. And God, we thank you for that. Um, God, we thank you for the blessings of your word, um, this objective source that we have to go to, uh, that you use to um, reveal yourself to us, to reveal our own hearts to us, um, God, to show us uh, the story of the salvation that you have brought to your people um, throughout history, culminating in in the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. Um, God, we thank you that 
because we have your word, we can know you better. Father, we thank you for the gift of the spirit, um, that uh, the spirit uh, who knows your heart perfectly, who knows our own hearts perfectly. God is the um, perfect intermediary um, between us, the, the, uh, how the spirit prays for us and, and uh, groans for us, God, how it, it knows us, he knows us and how he knows you as well. Uh, we thank you for that gift, a, a gift that um, we see uh, demonstrated in the Feast of Weeks in Pentecost, that, that the advent of your spirit coming to your people um, is seen in, in the passages that we look at today. God, we thank you for um, all your many blessings. Um, we ask that you would uh, work in our community, God, that uh, through your word, through your spirit, um, you would bring uh, revelation and blessing, God, that you would open people, people's eyes and hearts um, to your son, Jesus Christ, that they would hear the gospel, that they would understand it, that they would turn from sin, that they would trust in Christ alone, that they would be saved and they would come into um, your church and your people. Um, that they would live lives of, of discipleship and of worship and of faithfulness uh, and of belief. God, we thank you for all of these things. We ask that your spirit would continue to work among us. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're just going to jump right in because because we've got kind of a, a, a lot of stuff to get through and a lot of different connections um, uh, to to uh, get to. And really, there's there's other things that, as we've done every week, there's other things that we could say. We could zoom in on other elements of this feast and 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 talk about the ways that it applies. But but we're just going to try to hit certain points and 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 see what we can see. So and so I want to start by jumping just straight into sort of the historical observance of these fe this festival, this Feast of Weeks, what it would have looked like and what the context of it was when um, the, the Israelites were practicing it, um, you know, 3,000 years ago, all right? And so uh, as we talked about last week, um, most of the festivals are connected in some way, shape, or form to the agricultural calendar, and the Feast of Weeks is no different. It is, it is definitely a harvest festival. We said last week it is the lone summer festival. It is the one that sits by itself. We've got three in the spring and three in the fall that fall in, in very close succession with each other, and the one summer festival that sits by itself. Whereas the festival of first fruits, the one we talked about last week, marked the beginning of the barley harvest, the Feast of Weeks basically represents the end of the wheat harvest and in general, the end of the grain harvest, okay? And so barley and wheat being two staples of, of the ancient diet. And so this was the, the, the two festivals that acted sort of as bookends that, that First fruits was the beginning of one harvest and, and weeks is the end of a second one. There's actually, in a sense, the festival of booths is a third harvest festival. It was the end of the fruit harvest. And so that makes sense to us. We know in the fall is when, when you start harvesting a lot of the, uh, the typical fruits that, that, that we have in, in, uh, sort of the, the world we live in. And so we, we get that too. And so they were all harvest festivals. Um, the beginning of the, the grain harvest, the end of the grain harvest, and the end of the fruit harvest, okay? And so the Israelites would, would 
celebrate this festival, and they took the words literally that we see there at the beginning of the passage. It's interesting how like they would be particular about certain elements that we would probably just sort of generally read by. So you notice there in verse 15, it says, you shall count, right? Seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, okay? Well, it became a very big deal to literally count the days between first fruits and the Feast of Weeks. And so each family would have their own little traditions and little ways of counting down the days until we got to the Feast of Weeks. It's very similar in one way to the way some people celebrate Advent. So a lot of times people will have these Advent calendars. Maybe your family does that, maybe maybe they don't. But an Advent calendar kind of has this countdown starting in Advent and you sort of tick off the days until you get to um, to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Well, they would have a similar process. And so there were, there's all kinds of little, um, traditions that you see if you look in different ways that people would count down the days, particularly to teach their children to anticipate the coming of the Feast of Weeks. I think about something that we do in our house, not specifically for the Feast of Weeks, but, but for other important days is, is my kids will make these little paper chains. Have you ever seen paper chains? Like you just take a little piece of paper and you connect the ends and you staple it or glue it. And then you put another ring, another ring, and you make a chain of paper, but then you put the dates on them, right? And so each day you tear a piece of the chain off and tear a piece of the chain off. And so the sooner you get to your birthday or the holiday is something that um, you use to mark the days. Well, they did that. They actually called it the counting of the omer. Right, the counting of this quantity of grain um, that would come in, looking forward to the time when we will celebrate the, the completion of God's blessing and provision in terms of all the harvest of the grain coming in. And so um, an interesting thing that we notice is also they would focus in on certain aspects of, of the word, of the scriptures, and use that as an element of worship. And so uh, our call to worship passage this week, Psalm 67. Psalm 67 was one of the central verses that the people of Israel would meditate on during the course of the Feast of Weeks. And there's a particular reason for that, or at least they noticed a particular reason. In the Hebrew, Psalm 67 has 49 words, all right? And there were 49 days between Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks. And so that psalm sort of took on special significance. It's almost like, it's, and it's obviously a psalm about God's provision anyway. And so it took on sort of a special significance, a liturgical significance in the Feast of Weeks. And so what we notice is as we look at that description in Leviticus of this, of this feast, um, in terms of the specific commands for the celebration, we notice a couple of elements that we've seen in the previous festivals, right? We saw the, 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 the reference to a holy convocation. On the, 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 the 50th day, after you have had seven weeks, and then on the 50th day when you would meet, um, you were supposed to have a holy convocation. Everybody gets together for religious purposes and has a, a meeting, Right. Uh, it was supposed to be a day of rest, and so you had this day of Sabbath rest. It was special. Even if it didn't fall on the actual Sabbath, you still had a special Sabbath day of rest. We've seen that with the other festivals. But there are some 
interesting things that, that are sort of a little bit unique as we read about this, this festival. You notice that there was a big chunk of scripture. Some of the feasts that we've talked about have just been one or two verses. And this was a nice little uh, chunk of scripture. And we noticed a word coming up over and over again in that passage, or maybe you did. And that is the word offerings. So we keep on seeing over, in fact, I think it's like eight or nine times in the passage that the word offerings appears and multiple kinds of offerings. If you go back, you see all these things, grain offerings, burnt offerings, drink offerings, food offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, wave offerings. All these offerings are talked about in this passage. And so we're familiar with the idea of offerings. We've seen those already. And yet there seems to be like an abundance of that in this passage. So, so here's kind of just a little bit of information. It's something you might already know. You might have done a study on this. You might have, in your reading of the Old Testament, come across this before. But what we notice is in the Old Testament, there's basically five major kinds of offerings. All right? There are three uh, uh, voluntary offerings, you could say, and two mandatory offerings. Okay? So first off, there's the burnt offering. Okay, this is, this is one of the three voluntary. The burnt offering is a voluntary act of worship to express devotion or commitment to God. So you take an animal and there's different procedures that you can go back and see the specifications in the Old Testament and you would offer a burnt offering of an animal. Um, and it was a symbol of your devotion and, and commitment to God. All right. There was another one called a meal offering, which was also a voluntary offering. So this includes a grain offering and a drink offering, and it was meant to express thanksgiving or recognition of to God for his provision and for his unmerited goodwill towards his people, right? Um, the fact that God has just blessed us, and so we are sort of having a communal thanksgiving meal that we would participate in as an offering to God. All right. There was another offering that was called the peace offering. So this was a sacrifice again of, of thanksgiving and fellowship. But what it was, it was specifically focused around is a specific communal meal that would include not only the, the family that was offering the sacrifice, but also the priests and the Levites. And so there was a peace of the sacrifice that you would give over. And that would be the peace that the priests get. And there would be another peace that the Levites would get. And then you would all sit down and, and eat, and a portion of the, the sacrifice would be burned up on the altar that would basically represent the portion that God gets. But it would be like sitting down to a meal, a, a, a French, a peace meal with, um, uh, with God and, and, and the priests. All right. And so there was a point in that sacrifice where the priest would get the peace that was his that was being offered that he would receive as his own personal portion of food and he would wave it before the altar. And that's where we get the word wave offering. So it's, it's not a distinct offering. It's part of one of the other offerings, but he would wave it before the altar. And then that would be the piece that would be set apart for only the priests to eat. Okay. So burnt offerings, meal offerings, and peace offerings. Those are voluntary offerings. But then there were also two mandatory offerings. There was what was called the sin offering. And so the sin offering's purpose was to atone for sin and cleanse from defilement, all right? So if you had done something uh, sinful or if you had done something to defile yourself in some ceremonial way, you would have to, to give a sin offering. 
And then there was a final one that is variously called either a trespass offering or a guilt offering. And so the idea specifically of a guilt offering was it was also to atone for a sin, but typically it was for a, a sin that was sort of done unintentionally and more specifically one that involved another person who you now owed restitution to because of your sin, right? You had done something that had hurt an individual and now you owed them some sort of restitution for that. And so some kind of reimbursement or whatever. And so, but again, it was for atonement of sin. It was for cleansing from defilement. Um, and it's also the, 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 uh, the, the offering that takes place when people are trying to be cleansed from things like skin diseases and things like that, um, in places in the scripture. Okay. So anyway, we've got these five basic offerings and here's something interesting. What we notice is four of those are mentioned in the feast of weeks is that we are basically supposed to, or the Israelites are supposed to offer four of those, all of them except for that final one, that trespass or guilt offering. All the other ones were supposed to be part of the celebration of the Feast of Weeks, okay? And I think that points us to something um, in general about the feast, is that in a sense, it is a, it's a very broad-ranging celebration that is meant to encompass all of the good stuff. Okay. All of the aspects of our relationship with God. Okay. It's a, it's a festival that is zooming in on devotion and thanksgiving and repentance and atonement and fellowship with God. We're doing all of these different things together and they all are pointing towards something. It's not like Passover, which zooms in on a specific aspect. It's basically a more broad range, um, depiction of our, our, our thankfulness and our devotion to God in general. And it's obviously connected with the blessings that have come to us in the harvest and in recognizing God's provision. Okay. And so, so on one side, you would say, well, there's a very general aspect of this, right? It's almost like it's an umbrella, all encompassing kind of fe- uh, uh, festival that, 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 that checks all the boxes of our devotion to God. But there's something else going on there too, because there are some unique things that were emphasized that we notice that aren't in the other places. So in a similar way that the festival of first fruits made a specific connection to the forward looking tithe. Remember we talked about that last week, how the first fruits are, are, there's, there's language in that passage that connects it to the idea of tithing, right? Trusting God with your first fruits, knowing that he is going to uh, bring, bring blessing in the future. Well, there's a different idea that is tied to the feast of weeks. And that is the idea of gleaning. Okay, gleaning. So there's this, it, it almost, it, it, it seems like it doesn't fit in a way, honestly, when we read the passage. 15 through through 21 are all about how to practice this festival. And then there seems to almost be this like addendum. And it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Right. And so there is this unique emphasis on this idea of the gleanings of the field. So what the gleaning again meant was when you harvest your field, you're not supposed to harvest every little bit of it. When you get around to the edges of the field where, where the, the, the grain is sort of a little more sparsely located and stuff like that, you know what? Don't harvest that. Just, just leave it there. All right. As you're doing the process, I mean, you know, I probably the case is none of us in here have ever 
like, or few of us maybe have ever harvested grain, right? You've never, you've, you've not chopped it, but you chop a stalk of grain and it falls over. And guess what? A few of the kernels fall off or a stalk or a head of grain falls off in the ground. And God says, you know what? Don't go behind the harvesters picking up every little last grain. Okay. And trying to get every single piece. I want you to leave some of that stuff. I want you to leave it behind. And the reason I want you to leave it behind is because I want you to leave something that the poor can come along and find provision in those things. All right. This is a story that probably we, we remember in the context of the story of Ruth and Boaz, right? So Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, are destitute. They come back to the land of Israel, and they end up in Boaz's field. And Boaz basically says, hey, you're welcome to glean behind my harvesters. As my people go, um, you can glean, and you can pick up the, the, the remnants, and that'll be yours, and, and, and you'll be safe here. And then he even goes on to tell his workers, he says, hey, you know what? leave a couple of big stalks behind, right? Like don't make a big deal out of it. Don't single her out as a poor person who needs your help, but but do some things to help her out um, at, so that, that she and Naomi will be provided for, okay? And so the, I think the significance, or at least one significance is this, again, we notice a strong connection in the scriptures between the worship of God giving him thanksgiving, being devoted to the Lord, and care for the less fortunate, okay? We see that over and over again. We've talked about it, obviously, previously. We've talked about the widow and the orphan and the sojourner. We talk about these ideas a lot. And so I think there are some key lessons to be learned there. Um, For one is that those things are always together. Like we don't have to feel like, like in the church argues about this. I don't mean our church particularly, although our church has, has had these discussions before too. It's sort of like, Hey man, should we, should we care about the outsiders or should we care about insiders? Should we focus on inside or focus on outside? And the answer is it's not an either or thing. We, we do both of those things. We care for people outside, and we worship God and give him thanks for the things that he is doing among us. Those things aren't mutually contradictory. They are always together in the scriptures, and we see that over and over again, okay? And so God cares about the poor. He cares about these things. As we give these offerings, he's saying, hey, make a place for them to be provided for, all right? We have to do that. And so, um, again, our, our, our text in Leviticus, we see these offerings and these gleanings language stand out just as we read it, just as a course of reading it, right? Um, but there's also another significant tradition, an emphasis of this festival that arose up and was commemorated at the Feast of Weeks that we actually don't have a specific reference to in the scriptures, Okay, there was something that became super important to the Feast of Weeks, and yet nowhere in the scriptures do we find a specific place that says, hey, you should celebrate and commemorate this. And that tradition came to the people of Israel by them doing a little bit of calculating. Because what they did is as they read the book of Exodus, they started doing a little bit of math in their head. And they noticed that it seemed to be to be the case that the Feast of Pentecost happened. Now, 
to make make one point, they didn't celebrate the Feast of Pentecost in the wilderness, okay? Because this is a harvest festival. They weren't harvesting in in Sinai, right? They weren't harvesting in the 40 years of wandering. This was a feast that didn't come into its fulfillment um, until they got to the promised land, just like first fruits. However, what they do notice is when they start counting the days, they go, wait a minute, 49 days after Passover, or after the day after, two days after Passover, and they start looking at the Bible and they go, you know what would be about that time? That would be sometime around the time when Moses and the people of Israel are at Sinai. And Moses goes up on the mountain and receives the tablets of the law. All right. And so what happens among the, uh, the, the people of Israel is a strong connection forms saying the Feast of Weeks is certainly a harvest festival in which we honor the Lord for all of his provision in, in, in the harvest. But it is also a festival in which we commemorate and celebrate the giving of the law to the people, to God's people. Okay. It is. And so that becomes a normal part of it. And so, so the commemoration of the festival is intrinsically connected to this idea that we are also remembering when God gave Moses the law. Now, again, nowhere in scripture do we specifically see that connection made. We don't see a place that says, hey, and at the festival of the weeks, remember, this is when God gave Moses the law or when he came down from the mountain with the law. It doesn't, it doesn't say those things to us specifically. Um, but again, the, the Israelites felt like there was a connection there in terms of the timing and they began to celebrate the festival in that way. And so obviously the giving of the law is a pretty central event in the life of the people of Israel. Um, the law, the, the word, the Torah is the thing that delineates and describes who the people are, what they're supposed to, how they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to, um, differentiate themselves from other people, how they are rightly to worship God. I mean, all these festivals that we're reading, this is all part of the, the blessing and the gift that the people of Israel have, have received from God. And so those weeks leading up to the festival of weeks were Times of not only repentance, but they were times where they made a special emphasis of meditating on the law and on the goodness and blessings that come from the law. Again, we talked about that reading Psalm 67 was a key aspect of the liturgical focus. But another thing, reading Psalm 119 was another central aspect of celebrating uh, the Feast of Weeks, counting the days if, if, if you're, you probably already know, Psalm 119 is the longest uh, book in, the, the longest chapter in the Old Testament, right? It's 176 verses. It's a psalm that basically the whole thing is a meditation on the goodness and blessing of the word, of the law, all right? And so they took that as an opportunity and made that part of their celebration. Okay, so that's, we see this big picture of how Old Testament Israel would have practiced and celebrated what they would have been celebrating during this time, all right? And so now we come to how does that celebration, how does it find its fulfillment in the New Testament? Well, just like we've seen with the other festivals, the main trigger for us, the main thing that makes us recognize that the festival is is being, is changing or being fulfilled is its time. And so just like with Passover, Jesus is crucified and with, 
uh, unleavened bread, Jesus is in the grave, and first fruits, Jesus is resurrected. What do we see in the New Testament that happens at the Feast of Weeks? Or like we've said, the Feast of Pentecost, the 50 days. What happens? Well, in Acts chapter 2, that is when the Holy Spirit um, comes and and it is is uh comes down on on people all right so so what we see immediately right is the fulfillment of pentecost fulfillment of the festival there is a connection between the giving of the law and the giving of the spirit there's a connection between those things the fulfillment of those things so go back to the story of the exodus Exodus chapter 32. There's some cool connections. Again, little things, little markers that make us go, Oh, I've never noticed that before. Maybe you have and, but, 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 uh, maybe you haven't. So Exodus 32, Moses descends from the mountain after receiving the tablets of the law. And you know the story because you've probably seen the Charlton Heston movie. Um, or, or I hope you've read, um, the book of Exodus. What does he have in his hands? He has these two tablets of the law. Um, and when he arrives in the camp, he begins to hear this, noise that he thinks at first is warfare going on as he descends the mountain, but eventually he recognizes it is not warfare, it's revelry. The people are having this crazy um, celebratory uh, uh, party of excess centered around the worship of this golden calf that they have asked the, the, the priest Aaron to make. And so you remember what happens. Moses takes the cat tablets and he casts the tablets down and they are broken um, and, and again, that's the part of the story that, again, I think probably if you're familiar with the story, you remember those that part of it. But there's a less frequently emphasized section of that story. And it's what happens next, because this riotous, crazy party of chaos is going on. You remember, we think it could have been a million plus people who came out of Egypt in the Exodus. OK, so that's that puts last night's events to shame, right? Okay. Um, as you saw the people fall out of the stadium and just be in this massive celebratory like thing, man, that was what a hundred thousand people in the stadium that we're talking about a million people. Here. It's a lot of people and it's, and it's hard to get that in order. And so what happens is in verse 28, Moses calls the Levites to himself and he says, is anybody still faithful to God? And the Levites say, we're still faithful. And Moses commands them to take their swords and to go into the crowd and to bring order forcefully. Okay? Through violence, the, 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 the chaos is quelled. And in verse 28 of chapter 32, it says this, And the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses, and that day about 3,000 people fell. Okay. In the process of bringing order, the Levites put to death 3,000 people in the crowd. All right. The, the giving of the law in that moment is marked by judgment and it's marked by violence. So the interesting thing is the details of that story become conspicuous when we get to the New Testament. 
Because when we get to the New Testament, the story of the events that take place on Pentecost, where Peter and the apostles have come to the temple and they are preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 2. And what does it say in verse 37? It says, now they're preaching the gospel and everybody's listening. And, and it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, the people who were listening, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort to them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And then verse 41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to them that day about 3,000 people. And all of a sudden you go, that's a pretty significant connection. That on the day the law was given, judgment and violence ensued, and it cost 3,000 people their lives. And yet on the day that the Spirit is given, 3,000 people are saved. Why? Right? It is pointing towards an epochal change in the thing that identifies the people of God. Because here's the deal. The law is good. Okay? The law is not a bad thing, but the reality is, is the law cannot save you. The law brings awareness of our sin. And therefore, it brings condemnation with it. Okay? The law condemns us because we, as we look to the law, we recognize we have not lived up to this law. Okay? It is only capable of condemning us. Man, Paul uses pretty strong language to talk about the law. He calls it in 2 Corinthians the ministry of death. Okay? That's kind of a crazy thing to, 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 because again, we would, the, the, the Israelites, Thank God for the law. They were, they, they, it was a blessing of the law and the law is a good thing. And yet Paul recognizes something. He says this. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, right? He's talking about the law came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory. All because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory, right? So he's talking about this change. He's talking about a shift from saying, the Israelites were a people of the law, and yet we are a people of the spirit. Um, the law was what delineated them, but the law couldn't save them. All it could do was condemn them. And yet the spirit brings life. So it goes on to say in verse 15, yes, to this day, after uh, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Okay, he's talking about Israel. He's saying, if all you have is the law, your heart is still veiled. But then it says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And then it goes on, and this is one of the great Trinitarian passages that we have in the scripture. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All right? And so we see this beautiful picture of a new fulfillment. God gave us the law. And the law was good, but the law was death. It was condemnation. Couldn't save you. Couldn't make you new. Couldn't bring life. It had a glory. Okay? We don't want to ever, we don't want to talk about the Lord like, I mean, about, about the law like it's a negative thing. It's not bad. Okay? It was glorious. And yet when the Spirit comes, there is an even greater glory. A glory that brings not condemnation, but a glory that brings righteousness. And a, and a glory that actually is capable of transforming us. The law couldn't do that. The law couldn't make us into the people that we were called to be. But the Spirit can. And the Spirit is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And so the harvest that has come at Pentecost, that is celebrated, is not a harvest of men coming to God by obeying a list of rules, but of people who are regenerated and made alive. People who are literally born again by the Spirit to a life of Spirit-filled faith. And spirit-filled obedience. Again, sometimes we get misunderstanding there. Like we sort of say, ah, yeah, well, if the spirit gives us freedom, that's apart from the word. It's apart from command. It's apart from obedience. No, it is the thing that empowers all those things. It's the thing that makes it possible. You would never and could never obey rightly if you did it only out of an observance of the law. And yet because the spirit indwells us now, Because the Spirit has come into our lives, we are able to live faithfully and obediently. Not just box-checking duty, but we are able to actually live Spirit-filled, empowered lives. So again, the first fulfillment is the movement from condemnation and death to acceptance in life. Okay? That's the first picture we see. The law brings condemnation. The Spirit brings life. But the effects of the New Testament Pentecost also emphasize a second element. And this is super cool, particularly for our current world situation. And maybe it's something that we would not have seen coming. It's not something that we would have read that Leviticus 23 passage and thought, oh, I know what God's going to do. I know a way that he is going to fulfill this thing. We saw something about offerings or gleanings. It would make sense. But that's we see something completely um, different happen. Symbolically at Pentecost in the book of Acts, we see a harvest come in, but it is a harvest from every tribe and tongue and nation. Pentecost is the fulfillment of a, of a harvest of a new people. And so just in the same way or in a similar way that the law created a people. And we know that that's not completely true because there's more than just the law that created Israel. It was the sovereign choice of God that also created them. But the law certainly formed them. In the same way that the law formed Israel, the spirit now forms this new people that is the church, that are those who are in Christ. Okay, Because here's what we do. We start thinking back in the Old Testament. And if we're trying to think of Old Testament stories that somehow zoom in and give theological insight to explain why our world is so broken. 
Okay. So if I said to you, Hey, why is this world such a messed up place? Tell me why from the old Testament. I'm sure some of you start going to this. Well, uh, Genesis chapter three, right? The fall. That's a pretty important passage for why this world is the way it is. Genesis chapter four, Cain slaying Abel. That's a pretty important passage for us to understand the brokenness of our world. Okay. We might talk about the flood narrative in different ways, but I hope the case would be that very quickly we would zoom in on a particular story and that would be the story of the Tower of Babel. All right. Because we remember what happens at the story of the Tower of Babel. When it comes to tribal, ethnic, national disunity, the war and the violence that goes on between people, man, that story is particularly pertinent. Because what happens? Well, mankind gets together and they use their combined efforts to try to usurp God. And so what does God do? God curses them. And how does he curse them? He curses them by giving them different languages so that they can no longer communicate, no longer agree, no longer cooperate. What we actually notice is that while it seems like a curse, it's actually a blessing. Why? Because the reality is, is that fallen mankind only uses their unity to usurp God. Okay? That's the problem. Is if we get together as a people, as sinful human beings without Christ without the spirit, all we use it for is wickedness. That was what was happening at Babel. And so God curses them by splitting up these languages so they can't communicate. But in, in, in effect, it's a blessing because it means that our sin will be restrained. We will not take our sin to the level that we could have taken it. But we have to recognize it's a severe mercy because of the consequences. Because the reality is because of those differences that we have between language, with our inability to communicate, with our inability to empathize with other peoples, there is a lot of violence. There's a lot of war that has happened. There's a lot of discrimination and racism that has happened over the history of the world. But again, what do we see happen at Pentecost? Acts chapter 2. You can turn there real quick if you want to, or you can just kind of listen along. Acts chapter 2. It says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Ar- uh, uh, Arabians. And then what does it say? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what has happened? Pentecost has turned back the curse of Babel. The spirit is the only one that is capable of uniting people and uniting them under the banner of Christ. The harvest is made possible by God's influence. By the Spirit doing His work. 
So there's, there's, it's interesting because there's a significant kind of thing that I think we, we misunderstand. I say it wrong all the time accidentally. The apostles didn't speak in new tongues. At least that's not what it says. It says that the people heard differently, right? They heard in their own language. A lot of times we're talking about the gift of tongues. We say all of a sudden people can speak new languages or speak angelic languages or, or something like that. That's not what happens exactly at Pentecost Day. What happens there is the people hear in their own languages, okay? So I think there's something significant to that. The Spirit has to open your ears. It's not a function of somebody else being able to say it right or give you, you know, to sell it to you or something, to convince you with their own words. What ends up having to happen is the Spirit has to change the way you hear the way you understand, the way you perceive. That's what has to happen, right? We talk about the song or the the, the story in the scripture, I once was blind, but now I see, right? There is this idea there that says, I was missing a faculty before. I couldn't, I didn't have the apparatus to get what you had to tell me, God. And yet something happened where the spirit came into my life And the blindness, the deafness, the insensitivity to what you were saying was taken away. And now I can receive it. I can understand it. I hear it. That is the unity that the Spirit brings and that the Spirit alone is capable of. Right? And so here's just one application of this is with all of the racial disunity and things like that that we have in our culture right now. One of the main, one of my main hesitations to give any kind of endorsement to any kind of movement that we find out there in the world, okay? And I won't name any, you can choose your own, is what we see in this passage. Because the reality is this, racial, ethnic, national unity is impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you got a movement that says, we're going to bring everybody together, and it doesn't find its origins in Christ and in the work of the Holy Spirit, then it's bankrupt. It's not going to work. Even if it's, even if it's not disingenuous, even if somebody is doing it out of a, a real desire for these things to happen, it's not going to work. Only the Spirit can do that. There can be no unity among tribes, tongues, ethnicities apart from the Holy Spirit. Okay, And so the power that we need to bring to form a new people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation is outside of ourselves. It has to be the spirit that do this, does, does that. And that very idea of power coming is key to the whole passage because this is what we see as one final point. And again, and we could talk about other things. We could talk about the idea that the Bible talks about the spirit's coming being a seal of the salvation and the future that we have. And that's something that we could dig into, but we're we're not even going to take time to do that today because there's just too many other things. But I do want to zoom in on this last thing. The Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost is a picture of the power, ties to the last point, the power that only God has to accomplish his, his plans. 
right? When Jesus is emphasizing this in the gospel of Luke, a passage that we haven't gotten to in our study of Luke yet, he says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until what? Until you are clothed with power from on high. He's talking about Pentecost. He's saying, apostles, when I'm dead, you're going to want to run. And then when I'm resurrected, you're going to want to, who knows what you're going to want to do, right? But what I need you to do is stay here in Jerusalem until, and he doesn't say this straightforwardly, but until Pentecost, because it's Pentecost, you are going to be clothed with power from on high. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter one, when we see that passage coming to fruition, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Okay. Again, we see a connection to the blessing and hope of the harvest and the power of God to accomplish that. Because if it is only through the ministry of the Spirit that we are going to find the power to do anything that we want to do or are called to do, okay? If you want people to know Jesus, it will be the Spirit's doing. If you want people to worship God with their whole hearts, it will be the Spirit's doing. If you want people to be engaged in the Word of God, it will be the Spirit's doing. If you want people to faithfully serve and give and participate in outreach and evangelism and, and anything else, it will be the Spirit's doing. If we try to do that on our own, people will be going, just going by the motions. They'll be trying to check a box. They'll be trying to, to, um, do whatever. If it's not the Spirit that's doing it, it won't work. Okay. Paul reminds us of this interesting metaphor that goes back to agriculture. And what does he say? He says, you know what? We're all responsible for different aspects of this thing. Some of us plant, some of us water, um, some of us weed, some of us till. But at the end of the day, what? It's God that gives the growth. It will be God who accomplishes these things. And again, it ties us back into that beautiful picture of the blessing of the harvest. We can't bring the harvest. We can't make it grow, right? We are incapable of that. The power that it takes to accomplish the will of God is the spirit of God. So if we don't have that spirit, if we are not leaning into that spirit, then we are without hope. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning um, with the youth. Man, I don't know about you, but I am. it's way easier for me to plan something than to put as much time of prayer into that thing. Okay, it is easy to sort of say, hey, I'm going to organize this thing and I'm going to study and I'm going to do and, and whatever. And then to find at the end of it that I have put almost no energy into asking the spirit to work through those means. Okay, I think that's probably true of most of the church today. That's why we've fallen back on easy things, advertising or entertainment or whatever, because those things get results in a naturalistic kind of world. But it takes the spirit to change a heart. And so just like the harvest that we trust God to bring in, in terms of the grain of the field by his power, because we're incapable of making a plant grow or produce seed, we count on the Lord to bring in the harvest of people, to change people's hearts, um, and to do the work that he has called us to do. We still have something to do. We don't sit back and say, ah, well, 
God's going to accomplish these things, so we should just sit back and do nothing. No, God calls us to do all kinds of things. But he says it will be through my power that you're able to actually accomplish any of those things. And so that's the last piece that we see, okay? So again, man, there's a bunch of stuff. Gosh, Um, talking about the Spirit's a big topic, right? There's a lot of stuff that the Bible says about the Spirit, and we could talk about all kinds of other aspects of, of the work of the Spirit, the seal of the Spirit, and, and, and all these different things. But we, but we're gonna, we're gonna close with that and, 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 um, just sort of zoom in on those. And so, um, what I hope is that, uh, what I would encourage you, at least for one, is to be reminded of that, that whatever you want, um, whatever you feel like the Lord has called us to as a church or you as an individual working in the church or the blessings that he has for us or the growth or the anything, none of those things are going to happen outside of the spirit. And so I would ask you to pray. Pray for our church. Pray for your life. Pray for your ministry. Pray for your family. Pray for the witness that you have in your community or with your family. Um, or um, pray for your times of study in the word. Pray for your times of worship. Pray for all of it and ask, Holy Spirit, would you do the work? Because if I just come and try my best, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. Only the Spirit can accomplish these things. And as the spirit moves in us and as we live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh, we will find ourselves becoming more and more the people of God, right? We will, um, not to say that we're not the people of God, and yet we will see ourselves following the spirit as we walk this road of life. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to do these things now. Tomorrow, forever, that he would shape us and form us, that he would sanctify us, and that he would make us by the power of his spirit into the people that he has called us to be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, one of your teachers or prophets or theologians or somebody has said, God, that on the day of judgment, we will recognize all of the things that could have been possible had we trusted in your spirit, had we followed the leadings of your spirit, had we called on the power of your spirit. God, there will be a chastening moment where we will look at our works and realize how many of them were futile because uh, we tried to do them in our own power. God, you have given us your spirit 
as a seal of your commitment and of the future that we have in your kingdom. God, you have given us your spirit uh, to unify us as a people across every tribe and tongue and nation uh, that uh, our ethnic identities and our racial identities and our national identities and our linguistic identities, God, that they would all be secondary to the incredible reality that we are now a new people because we are filled with your spirit under the banner of Christ. God, your spirit gives us the power to be sanctified, to be set on mission, to live lives in keeping with the great calling that you have on us. And yet, God, we are so easily uh, ignorant. Uh, we so easily um, disregard. God, we so quickly count on our own selves and and our own power, our own ideas, our own ingenuity, our own creativity to accomplish the things that only you can accomplish. Uh, God, help us to lean on your spirit at all times. God, to seek after your spirit. God, to follow your spirit, to live according to your spirit in everything. And that as we do that, God, we ask that you would bless and that we would see uh, the incredible works um, that you have in store for your people. Uh, and that you would accomplish these things. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.